if it's something real, then it ha- it must have some kind of like importance in life, right? If it's so well maintained across uh, mammals and also in humans, what, 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 why? Why should a, a, a compound have this effect, uh, increase aggression in women and decrease aggression in men? Hello, my good humans, and welcome to edition number 31 of Afteris Ask Science, and Happy New Year! Those with a keen ear will hear a bit of a change in the way I'm sounding right now. And that's because I'm currently not using my multi-million dollar equipment to record a podcast. But I'm on vacation right now, so I'm using the earlier, more mobile equipment I had to record. Nevertheless, I wanted to record this episode because I really, really enjoyed it and I learned that human pheromones might not be a thing. Or they may be a thing, but we don't know yet. And that's the topic of today's edition of the podcast, pheromones. Today, I met Dr. Eva Mishor from the Weizmann Institute of Science in Israel. Now, if you're wondering how I have managed to purchase a multi-million dollar equipment for the podcast, you can visit my Patreon, that is in the description of the podcast. There are different tiers of support with different benefits that you can have. Give in to your fear of missing out and subscribe to any tier today. Let's now meet Miss Eva Michaud. I'm Eva Michaud. I've done my PhD in the lab of Noam Sobel at the Weizmann Institute of Science uh, in Israel. And Noam Sobel is probably one of the best researchers of human olfaction in the world. And I was very lucky to have a chance to work with him um, and be and have the freedom to pursue incredibly interesting questions about humans and human nature and chemical communication between humans. When Dr. Mishore mentions human chemical communication, she means the way that humans interact and affect each other by the chemicals that they emit from their bodies. And the first thing that I thought of when I heard about the chemical communication, I thought of pheromones. But little did I know that even though you could go online and buy any human pheromone oil for him and her, these oils are pseudoscientific. We haven't discovered any molecules yet that could be classified as pheromones. But before we go into that, what are pheromones exactly? In animals, pheromones are um, are much better uh, or well described, right? The first pheromone was between moths, and uh, once um, a female moth uh, emitted this pheromone, bombicol, um, a male moth would fly against the direction of the wind to the odor. So it was like we know that the, the female moth uh, emitted it, we know that the male moth senses it and we know exactly what behavior it um, produces. So in humans, um, well, it's not like that. It's not well understood and it's not (laughs) well defined, right? Even in this chemical, right, this compound, we know that humans emit it, we know that humans uh, receive it, but we still don't call it a pheromone because we don't know if I emitted more when I need you to be less aggressive, for example. We don't know if it's something that is innate or learned um, during life. So we still are extremely cautious in referring to it as a pheromone. 
So we call it, yeah, we call it just a chemo signal. It's a chemical signal that humans emit. The quote-unquote this chemical that Dr. Mishore mentions is the chemical that they identified in the work that we talked about in our discussion. The chemical is called hexadecanal, and while Dr. Mishore was the lead author and guided most of the work, the discovery of the chemical and its effect on human interaction was a collaboration between labs in Germany, Israel, and Japan. But let's hear about how did this chemical end up being the main focus of the study. So it's kind of cool because this work started in mice at all, and I wasn't part of this work. So um, there's a lab that studies chemical communication in mice uh, in Germany. And they identified, it's kind of fun because they found it by accident, right? Like all good things, they found it by accident. The mice weren't, uh, weren't reacting in, they weren't reacting with, with, um, with, stress as they expected when they put them in a novel cage experiment and they didn't understand why and then they found that they didn't clean the feces of the mice they're conspecific when they switched mice and they found that the feces of the mice contain um three uh <clears throat> three chemicals volatile chemicals hexadecanal heptadecanal and pentadecanal these were the, the chemicals that made the mice less stressed when they were exposed to. So it was like a social buffering agent, as they, <laughs> social buffering agent between mice. And then um, they did wonderful work in understanding what are the chemicals and also um, identifying the receptors that bind these chemicals. And they found out that it's a family of receptors that is incredibly um, um, kept through evolution. And almost all mammals have it. And so happens to be that humans have the same receptor. So uh, an ortholog. So mice have three receptors, humans have one. Um, and also humans have it. So we read in the literature that humans emit the chemical we know now that humans have the receptor. So like we have all the infrastructure and they send us, sent us a vial telling, have fun with this. <laughs> yes. And then we started. So we thought maybe if it's so well uh, preserved cross evolution, maybe also the, the, the behavior of it is also preserved. And if it's a if it's a friendly cue in, in mice, maybe it's also a friendly cue in humans. And one of the, the most maybe uh, important behaviors that, that olfaction is kind of like the language of in animals is aggression. And in humans, we didn't know anything about it. So we thought if it's a friendly cue, it, it will probably reduce aggression between humans. And this was our like wild hypothesis when we started this incredibly exploratory series of uh, experiments. <laughs> In the context of this study, and to start the experiments, we need to discuss how does someone measure aggression? One of the ways to conduct a social experiment like that is a game called the Ultimatum Game. In this two-person game, one of the players receives an amount of money and is tasked to split the money in two and propose that split to the other person. If the other person accepts, then the split happens, as the first player proposes. If the other person rejects the split, then both players leave with nothing. 
let's now see how Dr. Michaud used this game in her experiments. It's hard, right? Because humans, they come to the lab and they behave. It's very hard to create the settings in which humans will uh, behave naturally, uh, specifically in behaviors which are uh, perhaps very judged um, culturally, like aggression. So there, we just involved uh, money and lies. <laughs> and it worked. <laughs> so we told, our, we told our participants that they are playing a game uh, with... Uh, we had two experiments, two different experiments to measure aggression. One outside of the, one outside of the scanner and one inside of the scanner. Uh, the fMRI scanner and the one outside of the scanner, uh, it was a between subject design. And the one inside the scanner was a within subject design. That is, we tested the same person with and without hexadecanal, which is the compound we found. So I will describe the experiment outside of the scanner. It was a between subject design. You'll understand why in a second. So we had participants come in, we exposed them to the odor. We had them rate the odor, how pleasant it was. And the odor in this case was um, clove oil or clove oil with hex in it. Now hex has no odor at all, nothing. Like it's not perceived at all, which is strange to work with a substance that like has no odor. You need to trust <laughs> that it's there. Participants came in, they read the order, and then we told them you're gonna play uh, the ultimatum game against a participant sitting in the other room. You won't get to meet them, you, they, don't, they won't know who you are, you won't know who they are, um, but you're gonna play together. So here we gave them a sum of money and we asked them to divide it between the two. And if you reach cooperation and agreement, you'll get this money as bonuses at the end of the experiment. And of course, our other participant, which was not a participant, it was just a nasty computer, was like, did not agree to any, any distribution that is not completely in favor of them. So that is, if it's an amount of 30 shekels, which is like $10, um, unless it was nine dollars or ten dollars to them, they would not agree to the distribution. So this is how we provoked our participants to get a little angry uh, at the other non-real participant. And then after uh, five rounds of this, uh, failing to reach cooperation or uh, reaching cooperation when you win practically nothing, um, we gave them the opportunity to blast them with, in, with, with horrible noises. <laughs> so, yes, so now we told them this is a time reaction task, so just press as fast as you can once a shape on the screen changes. If you do it faster than the other person, which is the same person you were annoyed by at the previous round, you get to noise blast them. If they do it faster, they noise blast you. So yes, so we had like 27 rounds of this. Um, it was again uh, an algorithm deciding who won and it was like kind of responsive. Um, depends on how fast you were. 
So it won't be that, again, lies, lies, lies on top of lies, just so you'd believe that there is someone real there. Um, and then um, they had a button box, exactly as depicted in a paper. So with the faces in the paper, so participants saw these faces, which are um, taken from a paint scale of children. So our participants, which are adults, would probably understand the meaning of these faces. So uh, originally the faces were one to five and I added the six, like most severe face. So this was um, my creation. <laughs> so, so then uh, these buttons were our measure of aggression. The mo more severe buttons they cho chose to press, um, the more aggressive um, they behaved in our, um, yes, in our measures. So these buttons were used to measure the level of aggression of the participants. At that point, the tests were just held in order to measure the aggression levels and nothing else. However, when Dr. Michaud and her team were starting to analyze the data, different patterns emerged and she had to conduct more tests. We had women and men participate in this experiment. So at first, we didn't hypothesize any uh, sex-related effects here. We were sure, like, we didn't hypothesize this at all. Um, so we kind of aimed for, like, 30 participants in a group. Um, and then after we analyzed this, we saw that women and men, men like, react complete, completely the opposite from one another. So we just added another 30 participants to each group. So we had like 30 participants, um, men with hex, 30 men without hex, 30 men, uh, women with hex, and 30 women without hex. And then um, it was like a small effect, but so consistent. It likes trial by trial by trial by trial of exactly the same. But still, I have to admit, I didn't believe the effect. <laughs> I didn't. It was like voodoo. This was, this is crazy. You give participants smell something that they don't even know they smell. And this, is, this affects such a complex behavior as aggression. Come on. Like, that's, that's weird. So by, by this point, we had like 127 participants eventually in this, uh, in this task. Um, and I didn't believe it yet. So then, <laughs> then in the scanner, we had a completely different paradigm and a, a completely different method of um, transmitting odors. And like everything changed, right? So I thought, if everything changed and the effect persists, I would have to believe it, right? <laughs> Aggression is something specific, but it's a bit hard to quantify in a lab setting. When Dr. Missoua saw the initial results from the ultimatum game, the next step is to see what exactly is the brain activity in a similar situation. Here, Dr. Michaud explains how a multidisciplinary study like this is very interesting, also because you have to interact with different disciplines and work with other researchers to create something really, really unique and pioneering. So here uh, we said, okay, let's see what happens in the brain um, of participants 
behaving the way they behave. So here again, we change the paradigm. Um, the 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 first paradigm was the Taylor aggression paradigm, which we modified a bit, uh, which is like the 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 most used paradigm in the study of aggression. Um, and now it was the point subtraction aggression paradigm, which is I think the second most used <laughs> paradigm of aggression. I don't come from the field of studying aggression, so I had to like learn everything and and get to know the the field. Um, so it's nice because I met a lot of um, uh, researchers of aggression and they are the nicest people in the world. <laughs> so the points of traction aggression paradigm here, uh, we have two participants. Again, it has to be always interaction with someone else because aggression is like a social behavior. So it has to do with interacting with someone else. And again, that someone else was not real. And here I just told participant, I'll give you the, the, the brief I get participants before entering the scanner. You're going to play a game with someone else. Um, your goal is to earn as much money as possible, just like in real life. Um, but <laughs> the game isn't symmetrical. So um, at the beginning of the game, you'll have, we'll have a raffle, which is like the computer decides I have no idea what's going to happen. One of you would be able to steal money from the other participant. That is to deduct money and earn the money to themselves, to their bonus um, bonus cat bonus cash. Like they're gonna get it as a bonus at the end of the experiment. But the second participant could only um, deduct money from the other participant without earning it. Of course, our participants could only deduct money because then they earn nothing from this behavior, but their like aggressive response. So this is, was our aggressive response. So participants, and also here we introduce a really cool modification. Maybe you as an engineer would appreciate that. So the way uh, the point subtraction aggression was done before us was using a button box where they ask you if you want to deduct money, press 20 times. If you want to earn money, press 30 times. So <laughs> we changed it. And we had like two uh, toy balls connected to pressure sensors. Yeah, so our participants could squeeze the balls. And this is like a very natural uh, expression of aggression. Um, yeah, so this was kind of really fun to, to make. So we did it. Um, we uh, connected it to an Arduino, uh, which serves as the pressure sensor, and we have all the code uh, uploaded. Of course, everyone can use it as they please. Um, so it's kind of it was fun um, because I think that the equivalent fMRI equipment to serve the same purpose costs costs like more than one thousand dollars, and this cost like 10 or something like that so this was fun so participants if they press uh both uh squeeze balls they they earn money and then sometimes they receive a provocation and a provocation is when the other participants steal their money steals their money yes and of course in this experiments our participants are free to do as they please all the time that is, they can um, deduct money whenever they want. They can never deduct money. They can deduct money all the time. They can even do nothing if that's what they want to do. So again, to enable them to behave as naturally as possible.
Yes, for this to be like somehow ecologically relevant. Um, yeah. So here uh, we provoke participants again uh, in the same manner to all participants by um, stealing money from them. Um, and we measured how many times they decided to deduct money from the other participant. The measure of aggression was um, the, the times they decided to deduct money from the other participants um, 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 devised by the, the provocations they received. Yeah. And was, this was our measure of aggression. So here again, uh, this time in a within subject. So we had two parts, one against, we told them it's against one participant, then a short break, and then against another participant. And these were like the two conditions, one with hex, one without hex. Here we added no uh, perceivable odor. So it was only hex diluted in mineral oil, which has no odor. So we also changed the diluent and uh, Odor was um, like we had an olfactometer inside a scanner. We just um, blow air containing the odor we want and to their headspace. So again, this is as natural as possible. Um, and I assume they were not uh, they were not aware uh, no. that they were okay. No, I asked them at the end of the experiment, like, did you uh, sense anything? Uh, were there odors during the experiments? And uh, I had like 58 participants. Eventually only 49 were in the final analysis. But I asked 58 participants, like, did, this, did you smell anything? And only one told me that she smelled like a pheromone perfume. This is kind of like, wow. <laughs> Very specific. <laughs> exactly, yes. But this was like the only one uh, saying that there is some kind of odor um, out of 58, which is kind of like a lot. Now that we know what the tests were inside the MRI scanner, it was time to see what those scans were. Now, our brains have different areas that react according to environmental stimuli. As the participants were inhaling the hexadecanal, Dr. Michaud and her team were expecting the area of the brain associated with smell to be activated. But of course, we wouldn't be talking about it if things were that simple. What we found there was also incredibly surprising. So again, here we had the, the gender effect, the sex effect. Um, so women that were exposed to hex uh, reacted with more aggression compared to their selves without hex. And men responded with less aggression when they were exposed to hex. Um, and also what we found is the brain responses here, which was kind of like really interesting. First of all, we saw that um, the brain responded to hex in its social, in a social area. So it, it wasn't odor related areas, right? It wasn't the piriform cortex. It wasn't uh, areas that are related to the smell. It was the angular gyrus, which is... Uh, uh, like a place that um, gets all kinds of social cues and um, and uh, it decides context. It has also, um, it's related to, to all kinds of like uh, social context cues that are uh, for all kinds of modalities. It could be vision, it could be audition, and we now found out that it is also olfaction. Um, but that's it. 
this is like the only place we saw in the entire brain responding to hex in women and men alike. So we were like, what? <laughs> what is this? And then uh, I thought, okay, so aggression is like a complex behavior. It activates all kinds of networks. It's not like one area lighting up or shutting down. Aggression, no aggression. It's like a lot of networks, social networks, um, execution networks, um, all kinds of areas. And then uh, I did a, a functional connectivity analysis with the whole brain of this angular gyrus region. That is, uh, we, we checked how the rest of the brain communicates differently with the angular gyrus um, during hex or without hex. Um, so here we found that um, for men exposed to hex, the angular gyrus um, has higher functional connectivity. That is that they, uh, these areas work more together under the exposure to hex with the amygdala, the uh, orbitofrontal cortex, and the temporal pole. So the temporal pole was like the, the strongest effect, and the temporal pole is associated with um, theory of mind uh, network. Uh, so theory of mind is like when I'm trying to understand how you're feeling right now, these are the places that are activated, right? The areas of the theory of mind. And the amygdala and orbitofrontal cortex is like um, areas of like emotional reactivity and the decision-making that's associated with it. So all these three areas are like an emotional, uh, cognitive, uh, social um, decision-making areas. So the way I interpret it, and it's always like very tricky, I think, to try to interpret brain activation um, uh, patterns, but like we have to do it. And that, like, what's the point of all this if we don't try to understand what it means? Um, so the, what I make of it is when, when, you, when men are exposed to hex, the weight of social cues becomes more... Uh, becomes bigger in the their uh, reactivity. That is, their and and thus uh, reducing aggressive response, right? Because like the, the weight of the social cues becomes larger. But in women, um, the the functional connectivity decreases in the exact in the exact same uh, networks. So it's like their their their. Social inhibition is off. Here, after the, the, I'm just sharing with you like what, what was going on through our minds when we, we, we saw all these effects. First of all, I was shocked to see that it replicated in a completely different experiment and like all the factors were different. Um, so it happened again. And then I was like, okay, we gotta start believing this effect. <laughs> so we just, we were like, but why, right? Um, if it's something real, then it it must have some kind of like uh, some kind of um, importance in life, right? If it's so well maintained across uh, mammals and also in humans, and um, 
what, 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 why? Why should a, a, a compound have this effect, uh, increase aggression in women and decrease aggression in men? So now we're entering the next step of the research, which is the interpretation of the results. Usually, scientists get data from their experiments and find answers to their questions. They are also trying to fit their answers into a bigger puzzle. Either that's cosmology, mathematics, physics, or in this case, human biology. So then I read a lot and I, I just noticed that whenever people discuss, whenever uh, scientists discuss um, female aggression in the literature, now I'm talking about animal aggression because there there's not enough literature on, on human aggression, I think. There's, I'm sorry, there's much more literature on animal aggression. Um, so... Uh, Female aggression is always maternal aggression. There's almost no aggression that is not maternal. So it's like the aggression is there to defend the pups. And then we thought, okay, maybe this is what happens in humans as well. Uh, maybe this compound uh, is emitted by babies and it serves to increase baby survival, right? To increase female aggression, which is there to defend the pups, and to decrease male aggression, which is often directed at the pups. Sadly to say, but like this is the, the stats in, in, in the animal kingdom. So then uh, we found, so it started in Germany, it was in Israel, now we're going to Japan. So we contacted a lab in Japan that does um, that published a paper about um, the volatiles in baby head odor. So we asked them. Uh, we read the paper. We didn't found we didn't find any um, any mention of hexadecana, and we asked them. We emailed them. Uh, Excuse me, is it possible that you have any supplementary info or something um, uh, that discusses hexadecana? And they said, well. In our analysis, we didn't target the, we targeted the volatile range, not the semi-volatile range, which hexadecanal is in. So now we have a new cohort of babies, and we can do the analysis that you want on this new cohort of 19 babies and target the semi-volatile range. And then they did. And then, surprisingly enough, they said hexadecanal is one of the most abundant compounds in baby head odor. So we had an hypothesis, and it, indeed, it realized in the in babies that were born, uh, their sample was like one to, to four days of newborns, um, and indeed hexadecanal was there in very high um, abundance. The fascinating story that started in Germany took us through Israel and ended up in Japan showed that this hexadecanal exists in abundance in babies and it modifies human aggression. But Dr. Mishore is still not taking the leap to call it the first human pheromone. What would be the link to make it a human pheromone, though? I think if we show that um, when I'm in a threatening situation, I emit more hex, for example, if we show that it's something that is um, that it, that serves as a signal, right? So I'm emitting more hex um, when I need it. I think this is one aspect of it. And also um, to look if 
if it is innate and not learn because right now it is well possible that this is this is an odor that is learned across life right and we are uh, I think women and men are very um, the culture is very like differentiating to women and men and it might be that the whole um, gender specific effects come from like culture and social uh, constructs which are not innate at all um, so this is also one piece of the puzzle that I think that is missing. One of the key reasons I wanted to do this podcast is to communicate the limitations of some studies and show that scientists know what is missing from their work and know how many other things they need to be tested in order for the hypotheses to become more substantiated theories. I'm going to add a limitation here, right? Hexidica is not the only odor that can be found in <laughs> baby head odor, right? So again, this is a question, how this happens in the context of all the other compounds that are there. So this is another big limitation of our uh, hypothesis here, which is still an hypothesis because we didn't test that in any way, right? We only tested aggression in response to hex between adults. We have an indication that hexadecanol has an effect but more time and tests are required to make sure that this is a human pheromone. And that's it for another edition of Lefteris Ask Science. I'd like to give a big thanks to Dr. Michur for taking the time to talk to me. On top of her busy schedule as a scientist, she's also a mother, and the fact that she's doing such a great job is admirable. I leave links for her work in the description of the podcast. And, of course, I'd like to thank my good humans with a cape, supporters on Patreon, Sylvie Heck and Sophia Shanko. If you would like to support me on Patreon, find the link in the description of the podcast. Until we meet again, take care, keep learning, and be kind.